All right? All right. Welcome. Glad you all came. It's 7 o'clock on Thursday night. It's time for Catholic education classes. <laughs> We're in downtown Rushi at Busher's Market, and you're all welcome to join us anytime you want. Let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful day, and thank you for all who are here tonight. We pray that you will open our minds uh, to know you and to love you, and open our hearts to love everyone that you put into our lives. Help us to have a good grasp of the faith, Lord, so that we can uh, bring your gospel to everyone we meet. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I think today is the Feast of St. Damien of Molokai, uh, the leper priest of Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Yeah? You've heard of him, haven't you? I don't know that I have. Oh, wow. What a great, what a great guy he was. Sounds like it. The bishop uh, asked for, this is back in the day, uh, leprosy, you know, was bad, and, and, they, and they had it in Hawaii, and, and they would put them on this one island of Molokai mm -hmm. and separate them that way. And there were some Catholics there, and the bishop of that area, he asked for volunteer, and, and he said, if you go... You know, you're probably going to get the disease and you're never going to be able to come back. And he put his hand right up, said, I'll go. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And he ended up being there 20 years. The last 10 years he had leprosy himself and died of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was, he just transformed the lives of the people there. But, yeah, Father Damien de Wooster. Um, I think, he was, I think he was from Belgium originally. And, um, but yeah, you should, oh, you should read about him. What a guy. What a guy. Well, um, we're on chapter 4, page 39. Catholic beliefs about the Blessed Virgin Mary are derived from pagan sources. That's the myth. That's what we do each week. We, this book here is called The Real Story of Catholic History, and it's um, answering anti-Catholic myths. And so our, this our first one tonight is that everything we know about the Virgin Mary was just made up from pagan stuff. Well, certainly not true. Another stone thrown by the Christians stole their teaching from paganism crowd features the Blessed Virgin Mary. They claim Catholic beliefs of Mary are founded on ancient pagan myths. These attacks usually center on her virginity, the conception and birth of Jesus, and whether the titles Mother of God and Queen of Heaven have pagan origins. There is even an outlandish claim by the mythicist D.M. Murdoch that the Virgin Mary is, like Jesus Christ, a mythical character founded upon, founded upon older goddesses. Atheists are not the only ones who attack Marian teachings. 
Fundamentalist Jack Chick. You ever hear of him? Oh my goodness. He's, he's quite a piece of work. Jack Chick is probably the most vicious anti-Catholic I've ever read. I mean, we are all going straight to hell. <laughs> and one of the things about Jack Chick is he puts out his publications, uh, many of them are in cartoon form, so he poisons the minds of children and young people. And, and man... It's bad stuff. It, 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 there used to be a Christian bookstore in the Piqua Mall. And um, I even, it's so offensive. It is just so offensive against Catholics. And she had a whole rack, just racks of these comic books. So-called, they're cartoon books, but they're teaching against the Catholic Church. And... You know, I, I brought one up to the counter and I showed the woman and I said, this stuff is totally not true. I'm a Catholic. You know, we love and serve Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I said, these things are just completely and totally wrong, false, untrue, very defamatory. And I asked her to remove them. And she said, oh, they're big sellers, you know. They're big sellers. She, no way. You know. So you're just going to spread lies? I thought you were a Christian. You, you follow Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. But you don't care if you're selling lies? Big seller. <laughs> so, Jack Chick... In his tract, Why is Mary Crying?, declares that Mary was substituted by the Catholic Church for pagan goddesses. Chick's tract portrays her standing before God the Father, crying, telling him she is a sinner, and bemoaning Catholics worshiping her by bowing to her statue. Chick alleges that Catholic Marian teachings are the work of Satan, who wants to confuse Christians by, indu by inducing them to worship a counterfeit virgin. So when the Catholic Church was created in the year 300, according to Chick, under the influence of the evil one, it created the cult of the virgin to more easily convert the masses who were used to worshiping pagan goddesses such as Diana, Aphrodite, Venus, and Isis. This is just one of Chick's many bizarre theories about the church. And it's sad that such things are big sellers. I mean, he has sold millions and millions of these things. So it's no wonder some people hate the Catholic Church or they think badly of us. I mean, they've been totally poisoned. The supposed similarities between ancient pagan myths and the Christian belief that Jesus was conceived and born of the Virgin Mary are greatly exaggerated. In pagan myths, miraculous conceptions and births always involve mythical gods, 
not historical persons like Jesus. And their births are either through a sexual encounter or some type of miraculous creation not involving a virgin mother. One oft-cited example of a pagan myth with supposed similarities to the virgin birth is that of the Roman god Mithras, who was born not of a virgin, but out of a rock. A second example is the Indian god Krishna, who was, as it were, telepathically transmitted from the mind of the god Vasudeva into the womb of the goddess Devaki. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that Indian god right or not. On the surface, this appears similar to Jesus' conception and birth until the full story is revealed that Devaki and Vasudeva had seven previous children. A third example is the Egyptian falcon-headed god Horus. Horus was the offspring of Isis and her husband Osiris, who was killed and dismembered by his enemy Seth. Isis collected all of Osiris's body parts except his penis, which was thrown into the Nile and eaten by a catfish. Isis used her goddess powers to resurrect Osiris. She then crafted a golden penis with which she then conceived Horus. The early church recognized the Blessed Mother's unique role in salvation history as is evidenced by the writings of the early church fathers, who clearly believed in Mary's virginity, her role as the mother of God, and her exalted status as queen of heaven. In the 5th century, however, Nestorius, the patriarch of Constantinople, questioned those beliefs. An eloquent preacher, on Christmas Day in 428, Nestorius gave a homily questioning whether Mary was the mother of God. Quote, They ask whether Mary may be called God-bearer. But has God then a mother? Mary did not bear God. The creature did not bear the Creator. But the man, who is the instrument of the Godhead. He who was formed in the womb of Mary was not God himself, but God assumed him. Unquote. For Nestorius, Mary was the Christotokos, Christ bearer, who bore the fleshly garment of Christ, not Theotokos, God bearer, or mother of God. St. Cyril of Alexandria took great offense at Nestorius's teaching and wrote a letter exhorting him to teach the Orthodox belief that Mary is the mother of God. When Nestorius refused to turn from his heresy, Cyril wrote letters to the emperor as well as to Pope St. Celestine I, who confirmed that Nestorius's teachings were heretical. In a letter to his monks, Cyril succinctly captured the essence of Nestorius's heresy 
and its far-reaching effects if embraced. Quote, I am astonished that the question should ever have been raised as to whether the Holy Virgin should be called the Mother of God. For it really amounts to asking, is her son God or is he not? Eventually, the Ecumenical Council at Ephesus in 431, Nestorius's heresy was condemned and he was deposed and excommunicated. The title Mother of God is not borrowed from pagan myth, but rather reflects the reality of Mary's son, uh, excuse me, the reality of who Mary's son is and what the church has taught about both of them from the beginning. You know, that title, Mother of God, is very important because it helps people see Jesus' divinity. If Nestorius has, has Jesus in, in two persons, there's the earthly Jesus and there's the, the divine Jesus, but there's only one person. Jesus is only one divine person. He has two natures. He has a full human nature and a full divine nature, as we say in the creed, true God and true man. Two natures, but only one person. And Mary gave birth to a divine person. Okay? And so it is quite correct to call her the Theotokos, the mother of God. If you say she's the mother of Jesus or the mother of the Messiah, you're demoting her or you're demoting Christ. You're demoting Jesus from being God to something lower, which was what Arius did, you know, a uh, hundred years before Nestorius. He, Jesus was not fully God. He was Superman, so to speak. And so when we defend the titles of Mary, we are actually defending the reality of Jesus, who is true God and true man. Those who try to link Marian teachings to pagan myths also look to her title as Queen of Heaven for proof. Protestant critics in particular point to the episode in the book of Jeremiah wherein the prophet warned the Jews living in Egypt to turn from their idolatrous ways. The Jews did not listen and said they would continue to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven, usually identified as the Assyrian Babylonian fertility goddess Ishtar. These Protestant critics contend that Catholics are like those Jews of old, worshiping a pagan deity by using the same title in reference to Mary. But the use of a title in one setting does not imply acceptance of that title's connotation in another setting. Yeah, just because some pagans called a goddess the Queen of Heaven doesn't mean Mary can't really be the Queen of Heaven. If there is a heaven, and we certainly believe there is, and if Mary is the mother of Christ, she would be, he's the king, 
and she would be the queen mother. That's So just because some pagans had a queen of heaven goddess who was false, doesn't mean that we can't call Mary what she really is, the queen of heaven. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a somewhat on the same topic, somewhat off, but... So, I mean, we have, you know, the coronation of Mary, Queen of Heaven. Yeah. You know, how did that come about? I mean, how, how, I mean, how do we know? Is there any knowing, any... Well, let's take, take a look at this right here in the next, in the rest of the paragraph coming up. Might help answer that. Okay. Queen of Heaven applied to Mary is not rooted in pagan goddesses, but in the Davidic kingdom. In that kingdom, the queen was the king's mother, not his wife, primarily because Jewish kings were polygamous. So the title refers to Mary's royal dignity as mother of the king of kings. Pope Pius XII taught in his encyclical on Mary as Queen of Heaven, that the title was used from the earliest ages of the church and is deserved by virtue of her share in Jesus' salvific mission. Her fiat ushers in the kingdom of God. Her role in the economy of salvation as intercessor and mediatrix and her share in Jesus' royalty as the queen mother of the king. And so that concept of queen mother and kingship was extremely common in the day of Jesus because they had kings and queens all over the place. And so for the early church and as um, uh, St. Cyril, who's only in the 400s, he, he's saying like, I'm shocked that anybody would question this. He said, we've always said this, you know. And, and so right from the very earliest days of the church, if Jesus is our king, Mary is our queen. And so I, it developed very early on. The real story. The church's Marian teachings are rooted in scripture and tradition. They do not derive from pagan myths. Pagan stories of virgin births, and goddesses referred to as queens or mothers of a god are not proof that Catholic beliefs about Mary were copied. The church recognized Mary as the mother of God from its beginnings. And when Nestorius questioned that belief in the 5th century, it was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. And Catholics do not worship Mary, as many Protestants believe but she holds a unique place in salvation history as her yes to the incarnation was essential to God becoming man. All right, chapter five. Our next myth. Shortly after Christ founded the church, it underwent an apostasy, becoming the corrupt Catholic church. The true Christian faith went underground until the Protestant Reformation. Have you ever heard that from anyone? You have? I have. Absolutely. I remember a Baptist fellow at, uh, at the Shelby County Fair years ago 
we got to talking. That's exactly what he said. He said, oh, yeah. He said, my Baptist church goes all the way back to John the Baptist. And I said, why is there no historical record? Oh, a secret. That evil Catholic church persecuted us for centuries and centuries and centuries. We had, it was all completely secret and underground until finally we could come out in the open with the Protestant Reformation. I mean, it's just laughable. <laughs> but this is what people believe. The death of the Roman Emperor Constantine in 337 brought chaos to the imperial palace. Upon the death of an emperor, it was common for members of his extended family to be murdered to prevent rival claimants to the throne. Julius Constantius, the late emperor's half-brother, was seen as just such a threat. So Roman soldiers murdered him and one of his sons. His two other sons were shown mercy and sent into exile. Nearly 20 years later, one of them was executed. The one surviving son of Julius Constantius became the first and only Christian Roman emperor to renounce his faith and has been known ever since as Julian the Apostate. You know, when I read that, it, 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 is, it is kind of interesting that these people kind of knew what they were doing. You know, they murdered the extended family so nobody could say, well, I'm in line for the throne. And the one guy they didn't murder actually became emperor. <laughs> they should have done a more thorough job. <laughs> Julian blamed the murder of his family on Christians. And I, and I don't know why that would be the case, but he did. And although he had been baptized and raised in the faith, he always bore an animus against Christ. Perhaps it was because he was never taught the Orthodox faith, but rather was schooled in the teachings of Arius, the heretic who believed Jesus was just a creature of God the Father. In any case, Julian believed that there are no wild beasts so hostile to mankind as are most Christians in their hatred for each other. He kept his animosity toward Christians hidden until at the age of 20 he rejected the faith of his childhood and embraced paganism. Ten years later he was proclaimed emperor by his troops. He proceeded to enact a series of anti-Christian edicts aimed at eradicating the influence of the church on Roman society. His hatred of the faith was so strong that he even wrote a book against it, Against the Galileans, in which he attempted to show inconsistencies in the faith that would discredit it in the eyes of the Roman populace. He also posited the theory that St. Paul and St. John the Evangelist changed Christ's message and founded a corrupted church. And he argued that the Christian faith was based on a lie, that it was a fiction of men 
composed by wickedness. In essence, Julian believed, as many others have since his time, that the church underwent a great apostasy that corrupted Jesus' original design for the Christian community. Thankfully, Julian's biased message against the church did not take root. And following his death, shortly after the publication of his book, his political and social measures against the Christians were annulled by his successor, Jovian. Yes, thankfully, Julian was only Caesar for a year and a half, 18 months, and he was killed in battle. And after that, all the Caesars after him were Catholics, were Christians. And Theodosius, then, at the end of the 4th century, proclaimed uh, the Catholic faith as the official faith of the empire, and he outlawed paganism. So it's an amazing century. In 313, the Emperor Constantine, as you probably know, has his great conversion, his his victory, he sees the, the sign in the sky and he fights and he gives the credit to Jesus. And so he believes in Christ, although he wasn't baptized till on his deathbed, uh, which was something that was done by a lot of people in those days. Uh, he became a believer, uh, built churches in Rome and other places and stuff like that. And he issued the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, which said that people have religious freedom. And uh, after him, all the Caesars were Catholic, except Julian, and he was only Caesar for a year and a half. And then I think it was in 397, right toward the end of the century, the Emperor Theodosius proclaimed the Catholic faith as the official religion of the empire, and paganism was outlawed. And so we went from being outlawed to being the official religion of the empire in about 70 years. What, what a change. We had been murdered, tortured, arrested, and killed for 250 years. And suddenly it all changes. It's amazing how things can change. guess we should have hit out with the Baptists. Huh? Hmm? When we're getting killed, I said, I guess we should have hit out with the Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Um, back to our story. Julian was not the first Roman to float the great apostasy theory about the Catholic Church. The third century Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, in his work Against the Christians, was first to claim that the church later perverted Jesus' message. Porphyry argued that Jesus taught men to worship the one true God, but that his apostles corrupted his message by teaching men to worship Jesus as God. In the writings of both Porphyry and Julian is found the central tenet of the great apostasy myth, that the Catholic Church is not the real Christian Church, and as such, cannot be trusted. That's what 
so many non-Catholics believe, especially non-Catholic Christians. They, they, they just say, no, the Catholic Church is not the church founded by Jesus. It is a very, very, it was started by Constantine, and, and it's very corrupt. And it's based on pagan myths and all this stuff. This myth would later pick up steam in the 19th century with the advent of Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventists. Many Protestant and non-Christian groups that subscribe to the great apostasy myth have similar origin stories. Their founder was perplexed at the number of competing Christian groups and did not know which one to join. They prayed and received a revelation from God telling them not to join any of the established groups, but rather to found a new group that would restore the true church. Man, that, I mean, that's exactly Mormonism. Jo Joseph Smith, Jr., that's exactly what he said. He didn't know which church to join. And so he prayed and God said, none of them are any good. They're all corrupt. I'm choosing you to join a new to, to start a new church and he sends an angel to him and gives him revelations and makes him the great prophet of this new religion which is the true church. How prideful is that when Jesus said I'll be with you till the end of the age. Ah yes, that's coming up here very soon. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, in essence, the great apostasy myth is rooted in the belief that the Holy Spirit, despite Jesus' teachings to the contrary, somehow departed the church in the 4th century around the time of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea in 325. And as you said, Jesus said, I'll be with you always till the end of the age. The gates of hell shall not prevail against you are rocking on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I guess Jesus got that wrong. <laughs> as a result of the spirit's departure the church became an organ of imperial Rome and was corrupted in doctrine and practice the question posed by the great apostasy myth is whether the early church was the catholic church in his work Europe and the faith Hilaire Belloc asked what the church in the Roman Empire was. He answered by first describing what the church was not. It was not an opinion, a fashion, a philosophy, a theory, or a habit. Rather, it was a clearly delineated body corporate based on numerous exact doctrines, extremely jealous of its unity and of its precise definitions, and filled, as no other body of men at that time, with passionate conviction." Unquote. Belloc also identified the main characteristics of the early church, which are still present in the Catholic Church today. The church was a distinct and unique organism, highly disciplined, and ruled by bishops, of whom the chief was the Bishop of Rome. Yeah, we can trace the Bishops of Rome all the way back to Peter. 
266 of them. These characteristics noted by Belloc are clearly illustrated in the writings of the early church fathers and apologists. The primacy of the Bishop of Rome and his universal jurisdiction was acknowledged in the early church as evidenced by the Epistle of St. Clement, written before A.D. 100. Clement was the fourth Bishop of Rome. He was the fourth Pope. And he wrote his letter to the Christian community at Corinth after word of their revolt against the duly ordained presbyters reached Rome. Clement ordered them to cease their revolt and to restore the overthrown clergy. The Pope argued that the clergy derived their authority from God, not the people, and therefore the faithful have no power to establish their own clergy. <clears throat> By intervening in an internal matter of a Christian community other than his own in Rome, Clement exercised the universal primacy of the successor of St. Peter. His admonition was heeded, and his epistle was still read in Corinth a century later. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting item in church history. St. Clement's letter to the Corinthians, which we still have, by the way. And in fact, it was considered when they were putting together the, the, new, the list of the canon of the New Testament, it was certainly considered by many it should go in. It, it, it should, is inspired by God. But in the end, the magisterium of the church did not put it in the canon of the New Testament. But it is, I'm, it's still available. I have it in a book on my shelf at Lehman. Um, and it's interesting to read. But what's interesting about that is it shows the primacy of the Pope. Because when Clement wrote that letter, from Rome to Corinth, much closer to Corinth, in Ephesus, was St. John the Apostle. One of the twelve apostles was still alive. Now, you would think that if one of the original twelve apostles were still alive, the argument in Corinth, they would have sent somebody much closer in physical miles, much, much closer. Well, go ask... John, the apostle, who's right here? You wouldn't think that's what they did, but that's not what they did. They went to the Bishop of Rome. And so Clement makes the decision, and he settles the issue while one of the 12 apostles are still alive. To me, I have always seen that as really a great evidence of the primacy and the authority of the Bishop of Rome. I mean, Clement's not one of the twelve apostles. That's, that is just so amazing to me that they would look to his authority. But he has the office of Peter. And when he was alive, if Peter were here and John were here, Peter would have the, the trump card. Okay? Well, this guy inherits the office of Peter. So even though you're one of the 12 apostles, 
And you can't get any better than that. He still has authority. Isn't that amazing? That is so amazing. Continuing. The letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 116, and, and I would dispute that date. Um, my textbook at school, I think, has him about 110. Uh, he was martyred in Rome. And so I'm, I'm guessing that we don't have an exact date of his martyrdom because... I've seen different dates in different books. They're all pretty close, but he's got 116. Sometimes they even put around or about, and I think that would have been a better thing right there to put about 116, because I don't think anybody knows with exact certainty what year it was. But anyway, St. Ignatius of Antioch, he was the Bishop of Antioch, uh, I think the third bishop of Antioch, Peter, St. Peter being the first one, uh, he was arrested and taken across the whole Roman Empire. It took several months. And as he was being taken to Rome to be executed, to be martyred, he wrote seven letters. I have those letters on my shelf at Layman too. Reading the Apostolic Fathers, reading the, the Church Fathers is just the most wonderful thing in the world, next to reading the Scripture itself. It's these guys who were right there uh, at the beginning, they, just, they, they have wonderful insights and they have wonderful things to say. And as you read the Church Fathers, you see how Catholic the early Church was. It's the same things we believe today in the Catholic Church. And so Ignatius is a great guy. And I love his letters. And, and by the way, just off the topic, but in, in one of those seven letters that he wrote, he refers to the Christians as the Catholic Church. That is the oldest written um, citation of the Catholic Church. And when you read it in the context of the letter, it's like, yeah, that's what you call this. It's like this, it had been called the Catholic Church for a long time already. The letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, written in the early 2nd century, provide proof that what the Catholic Church teaches today is what was taught in the early church, including belief in the Trinity, the Incarnation, the primacy of the successor to St. Peter, the hierarchical structure of the church, and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah, as far as the structure, Ignatius wrote, where the bishop is, there the church of Christ is. If you don't have a bishop, you guys are just off on your own. That's not the Catholic Church. Where the bishop is, there the church is. Additionally, St. Irenaeus, in his work Against Heresies, presented the features of the true church in response to the rise of Gnosticism and various groups claiming to be the true church. 
Irenaeus wrote that the features of a true church are that it preaches the same message no matter where in the world, that it has apostolic origins, and that it preaches the gospel publicly rather than claiming private or secret knowledge. Gnostics claimed that they had the real but secret teaching of Jesus, which would be given only upon membership in their cult. Irenaeus also highlights that the church does not create doctrine, but rather receives it, preserves it, and proclaims it to others. We talked about that in our last class, didn't we? Moreover, any group claiming to be Christian must be in communion with the greatest and most important church, the one founded by Saints Peter and Paul in Rome. Thus we see in Irenaeus that the early church believed that the true guarantor of orthodoxy was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And of course we still believe that to this day. Another early Christian writer whose writings prove that the early church and today's Catholic Church are one and the same is St. Hippolytus. Hippolytus' book, Apostolic Tradition, describes the liturgical customs of the Roman Church, which are very similar to the current liturgy. There is a prayer of thanksgiving, an invocation of the Holy Spirit on the sacrificial offering, the recitation of Jesus' words of consecration, and a memorial acclamation. Hippolytus also exhorted the faithful to worthily receive the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist. The real story. The writings of the early church fathers and apologists clearly prove that the early church was the Catholic Church. There was no great apostasy by which the church was corrupted through the influence of imperial Rome. The Protestant groups that hold to the myth of a great apostasy do so to justify their revolt against the Catholic Church. But the historical record proves the early church was the Catholic Church. Those who embark on an unbiased examination of the historical facts will agree with Cardinal John Henry Newman, Newman's axiom that, quote, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, unquote. When there, there's just such an abundance of evidence that the early church was the Catholic Church. And all I can say is read the church fathers. Just read those, those writings that were written in the first, second, and third, fourth centuries. There are tons of them, they're quite available. And um, in fact, um, Ann and I have a have friends who are a married couple in Sydney and um, the the wife especially she got interested and she started reading and she started reading the church fathers 
and it's inevitable that they will join the Catholic Church. I mean, they had been part of other churches uh, and uh, evangelical churches, and and they had two daughters, and 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 they're very pro-life. We got to know them very much through the Right to Life movement, but. Um, as they kept reading the church fathers, said, this is also Catholic. We didn't know this. We thought you guys were just making this stuff up, you know. But it's there from the beginning, and uh, and especially the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I mean, and so they haven't come into the church yet, but they took the entire Catechism of the Catholic Church and read it cover to cover, studied it. And now they're going through it the second time. <laughs> I, but, you know, sometimes I'm just, I'm edified. It just builds up my faith. There are people who actually take belief in God very seriously. And they seek. And Jesus said, if you seek, you will find. And as I say to so many students, but who's seeking? Is anybody looking? We're, too, we're so distracted by all the wonderful things of the world and all the events of the world and, and, you know, all the media, everything that's going We're so distracted. Who's seeking? Who is looking for God? Who is looking for truth? Ooh, got to keep that arm down. Uh, <laughs> um, who's looking for truth? If you look, if you seek, you will certainly find it. But will people uh, legitimately seek? They are. And I, and I am quite confident they will soon be joining the church. Um, I think we have time for one more. Uh, chapter 6, our third myth for tonight. The Catholic Church caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, I don't think that's true. Myself, I don't really care that much if we caused the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Roman Empire uh, <laughs> deserved to go down. But let's take a look. It's just fun. Do you guys like history the way I do? I mean, it's just fun reading these stories. To see what happened in those days. When his father, General Orestes, made 16-year-old Romulus emperor in AD 475, he took control of a Roman Empire vastly different from the one established by Octavian, who's also called Augustus, in 27 BC. Rome in the 5th century was a fatigued state, riven by political intrigue and controlled by an army whose core membership consisted of ethnic German warriors. The commanders of these German warriors demanded increased recognition and authority from the Roman government for their services. In 476, Odoacer, a Roman auxiliary commander, demanded to rule a large portion of Italy, and was rebuffed by General Orestes. Odoacer led a rebellion that resulted in Orestes' death 
and the overthrow of the boy emperor Romulus, commonly known as Augustulus or Little Augustus. Odoacer was declared king of Italy, and in effect, the Roman Empire in the West ceased to exist. In the East, the empire survived until 1453, when the Ottoman Turks conquered the majestic city of Constantinople. What caused the once mighty and unconquerable Roman Empire to collapse in the West toward the end of the 5th century? Historians have concocted many theories, but a popular narrative emerged in the late 18th century that the Catholic Church, with its strict moral teachings and challenge to the Roman way of life, weakened the empire from within, causing its epic collapse in 476. Such was the theory put forth most famously by the English author Edward Gibbons, who died in 1794, in his monumental six-volume work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbons speculated that the church's objection to Roman morality and its failure to embrace the Roman way of life disrupted the unity of the empire, thus weakening it over time. After his victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge on October the 28, 312, the Emperor Constantine, who attributed the victory to the intercession of the Christian God, became a catechumen. Gibbon believed that Constantine's conversion accelerated the decline of the empire. When Theodosius made the faith of the official and only religion of the empire in the late 4th century. Gibbon explained, it altered Roman society to the point that the empire was unable to combat the later German barbarian invasions. Gibbon believed the teachings of the Catholic Church produced a servile and effeminate age where the clergy and their insistence on living Christian virtues undermined society. Emperors, Gibbon opined, were distracted by pointless and ridiculous religious disagreements that hampered the emperor's ability to deal with rising political and military crises on the imperial borders. Lastly, Gibbon argued that the faith sapped the military strength of the Roman army by burying it in the cloister. Although it is true the church rejected Roman paganism and its associated morality or lack thereof, the belief that the early Catholics destroyed the empire from within is pure historical nonsense and no reputable historian advocates the theory. The early church did not desire the downfall of the established political order and in fact supported the Roman state spiritually through prayer and materially by individual Christians joining the army, working as imperial officials, and paying their taxes. The early Christian writer Tertullian made just this point. Quote, We pray too for the emperors. We live with you, 
eat the same food, wear the same clothing, have the same way of life as you. We live in the same world as you. We sail with you. We serve as soldiers with you and till the ground and engage in trade. The empire persecuted the church and tried to eradicate it for numerous political, religious, and social reasons. Certainly, the church's moral teachings placed it at odds with Roman culture, and there was no doubt that this was a cause of Roman animosity toward the church. St. Justin Martyr, who died in 165, identified this problem when he wrote, The world suffers nothing from Christians, but hates them because they reject its pleasures. Ten general persecutions erupted against the church in its first four centuries. The great persecution under Diocletian in the early fourth century was undertaken at a time of relative peace and stability in the empire, and certainly did not distract the emperor from more important affairs of state, as Gibbon claimed. By the time of Romulus Augustulus's overthrow in the late fifth century, Rome had made peace with the church and embraced its teachings for over 150 years. Gibbon's widely accepted theory that Christians were responsible for the death of Rome actually goes back to the 5th century. After the Roman auxiliary commander Alaric, ethnically a Goth, who was upset at the lack of titles and recognition from imperial authorities for his military service to the empire, sacked the great city of Rome in 410. Some in Roman society argued the disaster was the result of abandoning the pagan gods and embracing the Christian ones. And that is absolutely true. It wasn't that long before. That's 410. And paganism was outlawed in 395 or 397. And so, you're only talking 15 years later. Fifteen years later, the greatest city in the world is sacked. Sometimes, I don't know how much you study about the Roman Empire, it was dominant. I mean, it was the world power. It was way more dominant than America is today. And we think of America as the dominant world power, and I think we are. We've got the greatest nuclear arsenal. And... But the Roman Empire was like super dominant and for Rome to be sacked was unthinkable. It'd be like next week, Washington DC being taken over. We just don't think that that's possible. But Rome was sacked. It was taken down. And you could see some of the Romans saying, well, this is it. We abandoned the Roman gods that they had offered sacrifices to for centuries and centuries and centuries. I mean, Mars was the god of war. I mean, so, hey, no wonder we're losing. We're not, praying, we're not offering sacrifice to, to Mars anymore. And that, and that is how the Roman society saw their gods and goddesses. They were gods to be appeased, 
to, to be placated. And if you didn't play your cards right, the gods would punish you. And so you can see how this great disaster befalls Rome and how some people would say, well, it's because we gave up our ancient religion. I think that's fairly reasonable on their part, actually. Uh, you can see a cause and effect there. Not necessarily true, but I can see how they did it. You're at but St. Augustine. But St. Augustine countered this argument in his monumental work, The City of God, by centering the interpretation of historical events in the divine drama of sin and redemption. So if the church was not responsible for the fall of Rome, who or what was? According to popular myth, hordes of greedy, savage German barbarians invaded Roman territory and eventually conquered it in a bloody spasm of violence, destroying along with it all learning and culture and plunging Europe into the infamous Dark Ages. But in reality, writes Herr Belloc, that the cause of Rome's fall was a change from within. It was nothing remotely resembling an external, still less a barbaric conquest from without. The most significant change was in the Roman army. In the early empire, the army was composed of Roman citizens who saw military service as a duty of citizenship. It followed a strategy of preclusive security focused on defending the borders of the empire. Legions totaling 300,000 men were stationed in fortresses near the frontier to protect the empire's 60 million people. But, but by the third century, the army had become professionalized, drawing recruits not from the ordinary citizenry, but from slaves and poor freemen. Recruiting became so difficult that imperial bureaucrats developed the idea of offering the Germanic tribes entrance into the confines of the empire in exchange for military service. Meanwhile, political and military policies sent the empire into a cycle of civil wars as the legions pulled back from the frontier. By the 5th century, the Roman army and its vital components was staffed by ethnic Germans raised in the empire and self-identifying as Roman, but not beholden to the wealthy Roman nobility or the imperial bureaucracy. I know that you know something about this. Well, I watched, I watched, you know, it's the History Channel, so who knows? Who knows? But it was not talking religion, so I, I, they generally get things right when they're not talking religion. Yeah. Okay? There's no agenda. It's just right. history. So, one of the main characters, you know, from the Germania people, the reason why he became, he was a Roman soldier and then and then went back to the German people, betrayed the Romans, is because the Romans would go to these, these Germanian tribes and stuff, they'd offer them a payday for their, for their sons. 
and say, well, we won't fight you. We're just going to pay you, but we're going to take like your oldest son or your whatever. And, and, and then they come back, you know, 10 years later, do the same thing. It avoids a fight. And then they take their best warriors, you know, future warriors type of thing. So I was like, that's, that's the only thing kind of a discrepancy is that, is that Germans entered their military through kidnapping. Oh, well, I'm sure that happened. I'm just saying that's like, that was a very famous German person. Right. So, so I remember watching that episode myself. Yeah. And, and the thing is, what the book here I think is trying to say is you no longer have Romans fighting for the Roman Empire. Yeah. You basically have mercenaries. You've, you've hired people to come. Hired hands are never going to get the job done. Well, and I think, and, and I think the, the, the whole point to his betrayal is that he served in Germany and then saw corruption type of thing happening against the German people. He didn't like it. Yep. Like, you know, people getting killed when they shouldn't be killed type, type of thing. And, yeah. and, and that's why he, he turned on them. We're just about finished. Let's finish it off here. The change in the army was reflected of the overall change in Roman society. After 500 years of rule, the Roman Empire seemed to buckle in exhaustion. Centralized bureaucratic control from Rome collapsed and power in the Western Empire fell into the hands of its ethnically German military commanders. When the soldier Odiacer overthrew the boy Emperor Romulus Augustulus in 476, becoming king of Italy and bringing the empire to an end, these local chieftains were forced to forge a new identity and societal structure. The church with its bishops and dioceses organized according to the imperial governmental structure was the only transnational organization in existence and its unity in belief, practice, and way of life provided a glimmer of hope and light in the chaotic world caused by the collapse of Rome. The real story the Catholic Church did not cause the collapse of the Roman Empire. The Church, even in the midst of persecution, prayed for the Emperor and desired the success of the political system. The Empire collapsed in the West in the late 5th century because it was exhausted from 500 years of imperial rule. Romans simply lost confidence in their society. You know, when I was reading this, and this is just my own personal thoughts here, when I was reading this, I couldn't help but make some comparisons to modern-day American society. We used to have a draft, and citizens fought for the nation. Well, it's still citizens of our country fighting for the nation, but now it's a paid army. We'll give you college, we'll give you uh, training, and it said that poor freemen and slaves went into their army. Well, by and large, the lower class of society is joining the military service, not completely, and I, 
I don't want to put down our military in the slightest. I mean, I love them and they're great. But it is different than when, like in World War II, everybody drafted, you went, it was Americans fighting for America, and, to, and, and it was all classes of society. And so I saw a similarity there. And then it said it lost confidence in their own society. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that we've had, in the last 50 years, I'm 64 years old, in the last 50 years since I was a kid, it seems like there's been a, a decrease in patriotism. We have whole groups of society, especially the elite, the liberals, who almost hate America. All they can talk about is how the founding fathers were slaveholders and how Christopher Columbus, you know, enslaved Indians and brought diseases. I mean, Christopher Columbus was a hero when I was a kid. He had discovered America. He was a great guy. George Washington was a great guy. Thomas Jefferson helped compose the Constitution. Now, in the liberal, in the liberal elite society, they, they're just terrible. And we should be ashamed of them. And, and, and they're... the other day I heard that there is serious discussions of taking down the Jefferson Memorial and the Washington Monument. Because those men held slaves. How can we possibly put up memorials to those people? They're awful, terrible people. Well, we wouldn't have the United States of America if it wasn't for these men. They were human. They were sinners. They were not perfect, but they did start a fantastic country that has done a lot of good and has done a lot of bad. But I just think a lot of people are kind of losing confidence in America. I think that's one reason why Trump is so hated. Because he says, let's make America great. Let's focus on America. He takes pride in patriotism. And I think that's why so many people, that's one of the reasons they hate him so much. Uh, is America going to go the way of the Roman Empire? Absolutely. I know you, you may think that's a terrible thing to say, but they all do. The Greek Empire went, the Roman Empire went, everybody comes and goes. Nothing lasts except the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God on this earth is the church. And it will be here until the end of the world, as Jesus promised. It was this exhaustion and lack of confidence, not the church, that broke the Roman system. The 20th century historian Kenneth Clark acknowledged this. Civilization requires confidence in the society in which one lives. Belief in its philosophy, belief in its laws, and confidence in one's own mental powers. Vigor, energy, vitality, all the great civilizations or civilizing epochs have a weight of energy behind them. So if one asks why the civilization of Greece and Rome collapsed, the real answer is that it was exhausted. 
And I just think that I, I totally agree with that. Uh, that seems so true to me. That, that civilization requires confidence in your society. Belief in this. And we've got people who simply don't believe in American society anymore. They don't believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in the freedom of speech. We've got college students who don't want you to be able to speak your ideas. They're snowflakes who have to have their safe spaces. Oh, don't get me started. It just drives me nuts. Um, and so, how fast will the demise of America be? I don't know. I hope America lasts for centuries and centuries. I hope my children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, wow. can, can live in a beautiful country with great, some of the great, the Bill of Rights is the greatest list of freedoms that any human country has ever had on this earth. Well, and it would be a shame to lose it. America as the country will, will exist for a really, really long time. But the political system. Well, that's what yeah, I mean. I, I know. Well, I just think it's, it's good yeah. to clarify. It's good to clarify. Yeah. Because the, I mean, just comparing to the Romans, the land, actually, the land, the continent is going to be well, here, I be, guess. And it's going to be called America. Who knows? I I, I don't think that's going to change. Uh, or, I don't know, but the political system, political systems plus, come and go. That's what yeah, I know. You're getting at. Empires, rulers come and go, and it's an amazing thing that the Catholic Church has an unbroken chain of authority, 266 popes in succession, an unbroken chain of authority covering 2,000 years. No other institution on earth, no country on earth, no political system on earth has anything even close to it, which is one of the great evidence that the church is a divine organization. It is not simply a human organization. It is human and divine guided by the Holy Spirit, founded by Jesus Christ. Glory to God forever. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this night and for all that you teach us. Help our nation. Help our country come to know you and love you and serve you. But most of all, Lord, we're not living for a country. We're living for a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And keep us always faithful, no matter what happens here. Keep us faithful to you and to your kingdom, which lasts forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.